0: pray together. Lord, thank you for this great gospel, this gospel of your love, this gospel of your grace, this gospel of your faithfulness to us, your people. Lord, thank you that there's no condemnation ever for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that nothing, no nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ. Thank you, That you have adopted us as your own dear children so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, this morning. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. That you've made us partakers of this divine grace. That you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Lord, we need you. We're a desperate people. We want so badly for our lives to be conformed, to be transformed by your word so that we might live pleasing to you. So Lord, renew our minds this morning. Renew our spirits. Lord, change our motives. Lord, do work in the deepest parts of our hearts and souls through your word this morning so that we might be changed, so that we might be more like our Savior. Lord, I pray for your work in our church this morning. Allow this foundation to be laid that would that would help us in 10,000 ways to live out the truths of your word and to be the people and the congregation that you've called us to be. Where we look into your word now and we pray, open our eyes. Help us to see wondrous things in your word. Things that will transform us and things that will conform us to your image. We need you now. I need you now. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, speak to us. Change us and we pray you do that in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Church family, so good to see you this morning. I thank God for you. You are a precious gift from God to me. Well, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's supper this morning, let's look into God's word together and let's allow God's word to shape us and to mold us into the image of our savior. We've been making our way through the book of Romans, a passage at a time, and we'll begin Romans chapter 14 this morning. In this section, Romans 12 through 16, Paul is exhorting us to live in response to the good news of God's righteousness in Jesus. Now that we have salvation Now that we have justification by faith alone, now that we've been counted righteous by our God, now that we have eternal security in Jesus, now that we have no condemnation ever, how should we live? What does it look like to be a living sacrifice and to live in light of the second coming of Jesus? This morning, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Follow along as I read God's word over us. What a joy, what a privilege to read God's word together today. Listen to this, Paul says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the God-breathed word of our God. May he mold us according to his truth. A couple of years ago, the Washington Post published a surprising article. It was about a Jewish synagogue in Kabul, Afghanistan. Now, for those who don't know, Afghanistan is not a place you would expect to find a Jewish synagogue. Afghanistan is overwhelmingly Muslim, and it is run by the militant Taliban. So not surprising, this lone Jewish synagogue in Afghanistan only had two members. Now you would think that two Jews in the middle of a country that is hostile to any religion but its own would be the best of friends. After all, they're all they have. They're literally surrounded by people who hate and persecute them because of their religion. And yet the article was about how these two Jewish men hate each other And have been constantly squabbling for years. And not just minor squabbles, major quarrels. Both of them spent time in Taliban prisons because the other one turned them in to the Taliban. And the part of the article that gave me a good laugh was that at some point... One of these Jewish men split off from the other one and created his own synagogue, which he declares to be the only true one. So you have two Jewish men who cannot get along in such a way that they declare there's two separate synagogues, each with a membership of one. Like, you can't make this stuff up. But after reading this, my amusement quickly turned to sadness. Because isn't that exactly what happens in gospel preaching churches all the time? Isn't that the kind of thing that happens in churches that have true and right theology? Even though we may agree on the most central truths of Christianity, we often find ourselves splitting from our brothers and sisters over matters that we disagree on. We're too prideful to admit it, I'm convinced. But a church with a membership of just ourselves could sound quite appealing, right? We wouldn't have to deal with other people who have different values and standards than us. We could have the exact kind of music that we like. We could hold our opinions as tightly as we want to, and there would be no one to challenge us. We could have all the right focuses. We could support all the right ministries. We can do exactly what it is that we want to do. Now, that's a bit extreme, but how do we deal with people in our own church who have different opinions on important matters? How do we deal with people in this room, people that we go to Bible study class with, people that we're in community group with, people that we're in youth group with? How do we deal with differences of opinions on important matters? Or let me ask it this way. Can you worship God with people that you think are wrong on significant issues that you care about? Let me, say it, let me ask it the other way. Can you worship God with people who think you're wrong on important issues that you really care about? Can you be vitally connected with people with different political views or who make different education choices for their kids, or who have stricter moral standards than you do. What do we do when our opinions on important but non-essential matters clash in the local church? How do we pursue unity when we just disagree with each other? And this is where Romans chapter 14 is so helpful to us. Church family, I genuinely desire for the teaching of this chapter to be woven into the very fabric of the culture of our church. May God make it so. If you're taking notes, the burden of this passage or the main idea, the main truth of this passage is this. We must not allow non-essentials to become central And damage our unity in Jesus. We must not allow non-essentials to become central and damage our unity in Jesus. Now to cover this passage and consider this truth, I want to consider three sections in this passage. You have the situation, the solution, and the foundation. So three sections, the situation the solution, and the foundation. So first, notice the situation in the church in Rome. Now, based on the facts of these verses, we can't know exactly what it was that was going on at the church in Rome, but we can tell from these verses that there were some significant disagreements in the church. In verse 1, Paul says that there are some who are weak in faith. Now, he doesn't use the word strong in chapter 14, but when you get to chapter 15, verse 1, he does say that there are some who are strong. So we have some who are weak in faith and we have some who are strong in faith. And these two groups disagree, have some strong opinions on on these matters that they're quarreling over. That's the situation in Rome. Christians are disagreeing On non-essential matters. Now, there are two ways that I know that these are disagreements over non-essential matters. Meaning matters that are not core to our faith. Matters that are not central doctrines or first order doctrines. How do we know these are non-essential? Well, first, Paul says in verse 1, opinions. He says opinions. We should not quarrel over opinions. This word literally means disputable matters. So these are not central truths of our faith, like the ones Paul taught in Romans 1 through 11, but rather simply matters of conscience. This is very important to understand because we're not talking about disagreements over the central truths of our faith about Jesus and his nature being fully man and fully God. We're not talking about the substitutionary atonement or the physical, bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus. No, we're talking about disputable matters, opinions that Christians have. Also, another way we know, the second way we know, that these are non-essential matters that Paul is addressing here is because Paul does not rebuke those who are wrong and tell, tell them that they are wrong and they should change their opinion. Paul doesn't do that. Rather, he actually tells us to welcome those that we disagree with. Now, if you know Paul's other letters, you know Paul had strong things to say about those who undermine or contradicted the gospel. So these are not first order truths that are being debated, but rather these are opinions, disputable matters. So what were the matters in Rome that they were disputing, that they were quarreling over? Well, we learn a little bit more in verse 2 and verse 5. In verse 2, Paul says that one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. In verse 5, he says that one person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. So here's the situation. The weak brothers were abstaining from eating meat, and from, they were holding certain days as more holy than others, while strong brothers were eating anything that they wanted, And we're treating every single day as if it were the same. And we have no way of knowing. But my best guess is, that it seems to me, it's probably Jewish believers who had trouble giving up the dietary laws and the festival days that they were used to keeping. You see, Jesus had saved these Jews. He fulfilled the law in their place, but they still believed it was their responsibility to keep all of the Old Testament ritual laws. Why would they eat meat if God commanded them to not eat all of these various animals? Why would they not esteem certain days as more holy than others if that is what God commanded? But Jewish, but Gentile believers didn't have all of that Jewish background, all of those rituals, all of those customs, all of that history. They believed they were free in Christ to eat meat. They believed they were free in Christ to worship the Lord. Every day equally. There's no way to give exact parallels to these that are going on in Rome because there's so many cultural issues tied up to them. But I think if I had to list some modern disputable issues that the church today has opinions on that often causes disunity, things that often sneak into the central things that really are non-essentials, if I had to list some, here are some that I would list. Whether to drink alcohol in moderation or whether to abstain from alcohol altogether. Paul actually mentions drinking wine in verse 21 of chapter 14. And so we know this was a third disputable matter that, was, that, that they were quarreling over in the church in Rome. See, some Christians enjoy a glass of wine with dinner or a beer with friends. But some Christians are convinced that drinking any alcohol would be sinful for them. How do we handle that disagreement in the body of Christ? Or what about whether to homeschool your kids or to send them to private or public school? This is an issue that is debated hotly among Christians today. One family believes homeschool is God's way. This is the best method of education. And another family feels free to send their kids to public school. Which one is right? Or what about what are the participate in holidays like Halloween? I personally know Christian families who think it is a sin to go trick or treating. And I know others who think it's a sin to not hand out candy and engage your neighbors on Halloween night. Some churches have Halloween events to try to reach people with the gospel, but then others refuse to even acknowledge that it exists. Which is better? Or what about political issues? which candidates to support what the christian's role in government is you think that's going to be an issue debated later this year what about decisions regarding what kind of entertainment a christian should or should not enjoy what about how much a christian should spend on houses or cars what about if a christian parent should deliberately miss a significant event in their child's life because their child is making sinful choices you get the point we could go on all day listing disputable matters that Christians quarrel over. Here's the situation. Here's the, the problem, really. Christians often disagree on non-essential matters. These are matters that are important, but they are not issues of heresy or undermining the gospel. They're not issues that, that, that reach our statement of faith, which is our core document that says, this is what we together believe, this is what we're united around These are disputable matters. These are opinions. And I don't think Paul is saying here that the weak brothers are always wrong or the strong are always right. I think sometimes we're on the weak side of issues and sometimes we're on the strong side of issues. It has to do with what we are convinced is right according to verse 5. Each one should be convinced in his own mind about these disputable matters. Again, how can we worship and do life with people who have wildly different views and practices on these non-essential issues than we do? Indeed, how can we follow Jesus with people who are just wrong on issues, important issues of life and faith? How can we be members together in the body of Christ with Christians who we regularly clash with and disagree with? That's the situation. But what's the solution? What's the solution that Paul gives to this situation? Notice, secondly, the solution. Paul does not say that we should go start another church with people who we agree with and leave all those other weak folks behind. That would be really convenient. Paul does not say we should just ignore those who are wrong and marginalize them and cancel them. No, notice the command in verse 1. The command is to welcome the ones we disagree with. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So the command is to welcome. This command is the key to this section of the book of Romans Paul is going to end this section in chapter 15 verse 7 by saying, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so the way to glorify God in this situation, in these disagreements, is to welcome the one you disagree with. To welcome them. To welcome means to receive into one's life to welcome others is to warmly embrace them to fellowship with them to do life with them to welcome is the opposite of excluding or canceling them now over the next couple of weeks as we make our way through this section much of what we're going to study in chapters 14 and 15 is going to help us define and fill up the meaning of what it means to welcome one another But in our passage today, Paul gives us some help as to what it means. He fleshes it out a little bit more. Look at the temptations he shares for both the weak and the strong in verse 3. So this is the opposite of welcoming one another. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment On the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So the unique temptation for the weak brother is to pass judgment on the strong. Right? Because the weak person abstains from eating meat. He judges the strong brother for eating. The weak look over the aisle and say, I can't believe you would do that. They judge them. But then the unique temptation of the strong brother is to look back over and despise the weak. Right? The strong think the weak are being overly legalistic, and thus they downplay their, their, their convictions. They despise their opinions. So to welcome one another means not pass judgment and not despise those that you disagree with on non-essential matters. So which one of these do you struggle with? Which way do you lean between these two? Do you find yourself more often judging others or despising others for their opinions? I find myself doing both, depending on the specific issue. Both despising and judging are the opposite of welcoming one another as we have been welcomed by Jesus. Now, a few clarifying comments about this. In this passage, Paul clearly sides with the strong on the issues involved. Paul clearly thinks the strong are right and the weak are wrong on this issue. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So in some disagreements, there is a right and there is a wrong. However... That is not Paul's main concern on these disputable matters. Notice, he doesn't take any time saying why the weak are wrong on these issues. He doesn't take any time to explain theologically why they should hold a different position. He doesn't do that at all. You know why? Because that's not his main concern. His main concern is to get each group to stop criticizing the other and to accept one another in a spirit of love and humility unity. In other words, you need to hear this and I need to hear this. There is something more desirable than being right. There is something better than always being right on every issue. Now listen, those of us who love our theology and love getting things exactly right, we need to hear this. There is a goal that is far better than merely being right. Because listen, you can be right on the issue, but very wrong in your attitude toward others. As First John would say, love covers a multitude of sins. Paul is saying it's not ultimately about who is right or who is wrong on these non-essential matters. It's not. Like, I can't hear that often enough. Because I I want to be right so badly. It's not ultimately about being right or wrong. It's ultimately about the unity of the church. For the sake of unity, we are to welcome one another, even in the midst of important disagreements. Disagreements. I don't think Paul is saying we can't try to help weak brothers grow and mature on certain issues. We can discuss disagreements. We can discuss opinions. We can help others along in their maturity in Christ. We just must not insist on it in such a way that we push away, that we stiff arm our brothers and sisters in Christ. It comes down to motive and humility. Motive and humility. Welcome one another welcome one another don't despise one another don't pass judgment on one another but why why what's the foundation for this command that's what Paul spends the rest of this passage fleshing out and so notice third the foundation the theological foundation For why we don't pass judgment and why we don't despise but rather welcome one another. Paul gives at least five theological reasons in this passage to not quarrel over opinions but rather to welcome one another. Why should we welcome a brother whom we disagree with? Why? Number one, welcome him because God has welcomed him. Welcome him because God has welcomed him. Notice the ground or foundation at the end of verse 3. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For, because God has welcomed him. This is the same word as in verse 1. Welcome him because God has welcomed him. In other words, we are called to imitate God in this. If God is willing to accept someone, even though they have different opinions, we certainly should be willing to accept them and embrace them as well. So I think Paul is pointing back to the truth of our justification. I think he's pointing back to Romans chapter 3 and the reality that in Christ, we've been declared righteous by our God. In justification, God accepts us as righteous, even though we are not. He welcomes us. And thus we should not despise our past judgment on those that God has righteous, on those that God has welcomed, on those that God has accepted. When we disagree on important matters in the local church, we should remember that we are called to act like God in this and to welcome one another. Don't make non-essentials central. Keep the main thing the main thing. Secondly, why should we welcome one another? Welcome Him, because Jesus is his Lord, not you. Welcome him because Jesus is his Lord, not you. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look down at verses 7 through 9. I love verses 7 through 9. Commit these to memory at some point soon. Paul says, For, here's the ground, here's the foundation. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. You see what he's saying there? You're not in control. You're not the Lord. You don't live to yourself and you don't die to yourself. Four. verse 8, If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He owns us. He created us. He bought us. We are the Lord's. Verse 9, foundation. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. To what end? That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ lived and died to what end? For why? Why did he live and die? So that he would be your Lord and so that he would be your brother's Lord. We are not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Master. We did not die and rise again. Jesus did. And so we can let Jesus be Lord. We don't have to be. For all those that struggle with control issues. For all those that feel like you have to be in charge. Here, verses 7 through 9, we are the Lord's. He is in control. You don't have to be. Sometimes we feel like God needs or wants us to correct everyone else's errors. Like we are some error police. But that is not our role That's not what we've been called to. Let Jesus be your brother's master and Lord. We are all people under authority. We are the Lord's. In death and in life, we belong to Jesus. He died and he rose again to prove that he is Lord. And if that's true... If Jesus is the Lord of all, then why do we pass judgment on and put stumbling blocks in the way of our brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died and rose again? You see, it makes no sense to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and confess Him as Lord of our lives and then despise fellow believers in the local church. That's inconsistent with what we believe. It doesn't make sense. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus are what unite us around what is central. Here's what's central. That Jesus is Lord. That he is in control. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for our love for one another and our respect for one another's convictions and opinions. Therefore, don't pass judgment on or despise the Lord's servant. Verse 4 says that Jesus is able to make fellow believers stand. And so the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and eternal security should help us to welcome one another. The Lord is able to make them stand, therefore you can welcome them. Jesus is Lord. Welcome one another. Number three, welcome him because his goal is to honor the Lord. Welcome him because his goal is to is to honor the Lord. I love verse 5. Verse 5 says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind about his opinions and convictions, which implies a thoughtfulness to our positions. Know what you believe. Know why you do what you do. Be convinced in your mind about why you do. And then notice verse 6 gives the motivation behind our convictions. Why do we do what we do? The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats Eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So we should welcome one another because we have the same goal. We are aiming at the same thing. This is part of assuming the best and being charitable toward each other. Listen, if you decide that homeschooling is best for your family, do it in honor of the Lord. Go all in and give thanks to God for that ability. And if you decide that public school is best for your family, do it for the glory of God. Give thanks to God for that option. And honor the Lord. Honor the Lord by allowing fellow believers to honor the Lord with their convictions. You see, if we have the same goal, if we're shooting at the same target, how can we despise and pass judgment on one another? We want the same thing. We're aiming at the same goal. Of course, this implies that over all of life, we're asking the question, what most honors the Lord? Can I honor the Lord watching this movie or having this drink or getting this tattoo or voting for this candidate? Can I honor the Lord doing that thing? And if you abstain from it, abstain for the glory of Jesus. And if you partake, partake for the glory of Jesus. And respect and honor your brother and sister whom you disagree with because you have the same goal. Fourth, welcome him because he is your brother. Welcome him because he is your brother. Notice the tone of verse 10. Paul asks, Why? Do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? He's your brother. She's your sister. You're part of the same family. You have the same father. Therefore, have brotherly affection. Show grace to the weak brother because he is your brother. She is your sister. In all disagreements over disputable matters, keep in mind that we are family. We are graciously adopted by the generous Father of both of us. Don't despise, don't pass judgment on your brother because he is your brother. Fifth and finally, foundation. Welcome him because we will all stand before the judge. Welcome him because all of us will stand before the judge. So in verses 10 through 12, Paul emphasizes That there is coming a day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And in light of that, Paul says, welcome one another. In light of the coming judgment, welcome each other. If a brother is wrong and has wrong motives, he will be judged. But so will we all be judged. We will stand before the judge. And friends, when we stand before the judge, we won't care about which political candidates or policies our brother supported or didn't support. No one will be looking at tattoos at the great white throne judgment. It won't matter if your Christian sister breastfed her children or used formula You won't care if they hunted Easter eggs on Easter or -or trick-or-treated at Halloween or put presents from Santa under the Christmas tree. Put all of your disputed matters and opinions up to the light of the coming judgment. You will give an account for yourself. You will give an account for the convictions you held. And you will give an account for the response to those you disagreed with. Far more important on that day than being Right. Will be, have you welcomed one another? Church family, it's part of God's good and gracious design for our church that we get to deal with people who we disagree with. We get to deal with people who we disagree with. If you were part of a church where you were the only member, or whether it's full of people who have the same opinions as you, you would never have an opportunity. To exercise patience or forgiveness. You would never have the joy of welcoming one another as you have been welcomed by Jesus. Well, Think about how the Lord's Supper is a perfect response to the truths that we learn in this passage. Because the Lord's Supper is an intentionally corporate practice. We don't do the Lord's Supper by ourselves, in our room, just me and Jesus, but rather we do it here together when we gather because it calls us to unity. Are we loving one another? Is our unity founded on the central truths of our faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Can you partake side by side with a brother or a sister who has very different opinions than you on important matters, but you can partake together because you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's the only way to experience salvation. You see, when we partake of the bread together, we're declaring our shared faith in the broken body of Jesus. We're pointing at what's central. Whenever we partake with a loud arrow saying, this we're united on. When we partake of the cup together, we're all proclaiming that our sins are paid for by the blood of Jesus. We're underscoring what unites us. And so evaluate in this moment, not just your relationship with God, but also your relationship with others in your church family. And where you have fallen short, repent and trust that Jesus' death is a sufficient payment for your sins. So listen, if you're not following Jesus if you're not committed to a local church like this one where people know you and you know them, then Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, do not partake in an unworthy manner. This ordinance is not for you if you're not following Jesus. So take this time to evaluate your life, evaluate eternity, and ask God to open your eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are committed to his church, then partake today with joy and amazement that Jesus is everything you need, and he's also everything your brother needs. And so as we partake, we, we partake intentionally together because we are individually members one of another. As the music team comes, as the deacons who are going to serve us come, let's evaluate ourselves before we partake of these elements. Allow God's word to be like a mirror to show you where you fall short and where you need Jesus. As we pass these elements out, let's take the time to evaluate ourselves before our God.